You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, all, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm Matt Brock. This week, we have one special guest, Dr. Kellen Baker, who's worked on a groundbreaking study for a population too long ignored by healthcare. Later, a look at behavioral health awareness and a trip around some of NCQA's current and upcoming programs. But first, Dr. Kellen Baker is a health services researcher with a PhD in health policy and management from Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Baker is currently executive director of the Whitman Walker Institute. The Institute's parent organization, Whitman Walker Health, began as an historic Washington, D.C. clinic that was especially known for its care for those infected with HIV or AIDS throughout the 1980s. And Whitman Walker remains stalwart in providing both treatment for and support of LGBTQ plus communities throughout the country. Dr. Baker was previously a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focused on regulatory policy across the Department of Health and Human Services, including non-discrimination laws and ensuring the benefits of the Affordable Care Act reach LGBTQ communities. Dr. Baker is particularly passionate about enhancing data collection and measurement in order to enhance health equity. Dr. Baker is also a transgender man. On this show, we often discuss health disparities, but we don't often talk to someone who deals with the fears and frustrations of inequity nearly every time they see a doctor. Our guest journey to healthcare and to Whitman Walker is very unique and very personal. Dr. Baker is both a professional and personal expert in the needs of transgender people and knows the need for active allyship and support through the healthcare system for those going through gender transition. Here's our talk with Dr. Kellen Baker. You know, at NCQA, we believe the road to the promised land is paved with measurement. You believe that too, because you've worked uh, with Health and Human Services on a project through the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, it's a groundbreaking study you worked on. I believe it's called Measuring Sex, Gender Identity, and Sexual Orientation for the National Institutes of Health. Tell us about that work. In 2009, I was a new policy analyst in D.C., and I learned about an Institute of Medicine study that was looking at LGBT health. And I went and I testified to the committee and I told them about the experience of being transgender, the experience of being, broadly speaking, LGBT, and how that had affected my overall health and well-being and the things that I thought I, I needed to make it possible for me to feel supported and living my best life. That report came out in 2011, and it was a groundbreaking effort to look at the health and well-being of LGBT people. And what we saw in 2011 was really a lot of gaps. The report was intended to look at research gaps and opportunities. It ended up identifying mostly gaps and saying, we don't have enough information about so many aspects of LGBT population or individual health. So in 2020, the National Academies came out with a follow-up study, which I was involved in, that looked not just at health specifically as a sector, but at all of those other sectors that 
all those sectors that affect health, the criminal justice system, the workplace, education, all of these different things that go into determining people's overall health status. And the recommendations that came out of that report were all focused on data collection. They said, we don't still have enough information about what's happening for LGBTQI plus people in our everyday lives to know exactly how to address all of these disparities that are being documented in the literature. So are they so so are they under uh, identified? Is that part of the problem? At this point in 2011, they were under identified. At this point, we really know what the disparities are. The issue is that we don't fully understand in so many cases what's driving them, and we often don't know what to do about them. Hmm. So the National Institutes of Health, there were 19 institute centers, offices within NIH that supported a follow-up study at the National Academies that said the 2020 study told us that it's important to collect these data, to your point, to help us measure the problems and to help us assess the interventions that will work. So now someone needs to tell us how to collect those data. So the study that we released in March of 2022 does exactly that. It lays out recommended standards for collecting sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation data in a variety of different settings, such as population surveys, administrative records, and electronic medical records. The goal of that measurement is to improve both individual health and the health of LGBTQI plus populations on a larger level. So the study that you just released tells us how to in, uh, for uh, let me ingest this new measurement matrix into the current system, correct? It tells us how to measure these concepts, how to measure these variables. Okay. And in particular, we see, we see two things. One is that often these measures are simply absent. We're not asking about sexual orientation or we're not asking about gender, for example, in a way that allows us to understand who is transgender and who is cisgender. So it says in many cases, we need to start asking these questions. And then in other places, it says we need to improve how we're asking these questions. In particular, we noted that there is a problem of a conflation between sex and gender and saying that one is a proxy for the other, that one inherently determines the other. That's what we're seeing on the state level, right, with these bands that are saying, well, your biological, quote unquote, sex is this. Therefore, we know everything we could ever possibly need to know about who you are. And that's just not the case. Sex is complicated. Gender is complicated. It's not just one component. It's actually two multi-faceted, multi-dimensional things that relate to each other in complex ways. Even within a single survey, they'll say, you know, one question is something about your sex and then another question, something about your gender and completely conflated, completely confused and a complete lack of clarity about what you mean. When you say sex, do you mean what anatomy does someone have? What are their chromosomes? What hormone milieu do they have? have what sex was put on their original birth certificate, what sex is on their current birth certificate. There are so many different components of sex that we do not do a good job of measuring correctly so that we can really reflect that data in ways that can help individual patient health. 
So we've identified the problem, what could help some some measures that could help with it and and how to measure those concepts. Where does it stand? What uh, are next steps to to integrate that into the system, into our huge measurement matrix across the country? There's both a practical logistical piece of this and a larger, not symbolic, but there's both a practical logistical piece of this and a more metaphysical piece. I think that's still the wrong word, but the practical logistical piece is we have data collection systems. They are collecting data about sex or they're collecting data about gender. I guarantee it, but they're probably doing it poorly. We can improve that. We can take a look at how we're measuring these constructs and say, oh, what we actually mean to measure here, and this is one of the conclusions of the 2022 report, is that often what we're looking for is actually data on gender. Because what we're looking for is the relationship between a person's sense of who they are and how they're moving through the world. So data on gender is pretty much always relevant in research, in clinical care, in any interaction with a person. What you're looking at is someone's gender. What you're interacting with is someone's gender. Sex, different components of sex may also be useful. Sex assigned at birth, for instance, is not a perfect proxy for anatomy, but it can help underpin, for instance, clinical decision support that says, you need to make sure as a provider that this person is getting all of the appropriate clinical preventive screenings. It can also help us understand different patterns of disparities, different patterns of disease that relate to, for instance, anatomy or hormones or different elements of how sex shows up in people's bodies and in people's lives. The other sort of more metaphysical piece though is are we even collecting these data at all? Do we care about them? Do we think that LGBTQI plus people exist or do we pretend like they don't? And so that is where I think a lot more work needs to be done to not only interrogate our existing systems to say, how can we ask existing questions better, but also to say, where do we need to ask new questions? Uh, your career and your life are both very, um, very interesting. So uh, tell me how we got here. How did we get to Whitman Walker? I landed in DC in 2008, in the summer of 2008, after several years abroad, I majored in Russian and astrophysics at Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia. And when I finished, as one does when you finish your college career or your time in college, you start looking for the job. And for me, the job was as a translator and editor at the Russian Academy of Sciences. And so I moved to Moscow in 2004 and lived there for a number of years working as a translator, editor. And while I was there, I had a number of, I guess you might call them epiphanies. Um, one was realizing that translating, editing, and science from the perspective of something like astrophysics, which is very, very focused on getting your data from telescopes and then spending a lot of time alone analyzing it, realizing that I wanted to do something that was more connected with people. And so I started looking for a field that would allow me to talk about all of the things that influence how people are able to make choices about our own lives 
I had come out as gay, as a lesbian, actually, in 1994 in my conservative Southern California public high school and had a lot of experiences trying to navigate what people were saying to me about me, what that meant about my opportunities in life and how people were interacting with me. And so when I moved to Moscow, I started realizing in this sort of very heavily gendered uh, society, very heavily gendered language, realizing that it wasn't actually that I was gay, it was actually that I am transgender. And so I went to the internet as one does. This was 2004, 2005. And I was very fortunate that there was a relatively new website. It's called FTM Pirikwod, FTM Transition, that had recently launched and had a forum where you could go and ask questions of other transgender people. And so I made a number of friends through that website and they helped me navigate the experience of accessing hormone therapy and mental health counseling in Moscow in order to transition from female to male. And that was really eye-opening for me in terms of the opportunities that I had and the ways that people treated me as an American citizen versus how my friends who were Russian citizens were treated, some of the hoops that they have to jump through that I did not. And again, just this idea that there were systems of bureaucracy, systems of government, social systems that could constrain or open opportunities for individuals, for communities on the basis of elements such as their gender, their disability status, their sexual orientation, et cetera. Um, and so I looked for, as I say, a field where I could really kind of tackle all of that. And I landed on public health because everything at its root is a determinant of health, the social, political and economic determinants of health, what makes us healthy and what makes us sick. So I want to talk to you about those things. But, yeah, let's finish. So you came back and you uh, you couldn't just get one degree at GW. You had to get two. Had to get two. <laughs> um, so I landed in D.C. in 2008, shortly before the presidential election. And also on the ballot in 2008 for Californians was a measure that would repeal the right of same-sex couples to get married. And I'm from California. In 1998, there was a previous effort to amend the state constitution to prevent same-sex couples from marrying. And I had a lot of memories of what it felt like to be a queer teenager and hearing people talk about who I was and what I deserved and what should happen to me because of who I am. And so when this came up, on the sort, ballot, of like, sort of like somebody talking like you're not in the room a little bit. Yeah, you know, just again, people feeling like they had the right or the privilege to make my decisions for me mm -hmm. and to define who I am and what I can do for me. And when the 2008 election happened, this amendment, Proposition 8, passed. And this was just a devastating feeling to know that there had been conversations about this 10 years prior. There had been some positive steps forward, a lot of steps back, but same-sex couples had been able to marry in California starting earlier in that year and to know that this amendment had taken that away. 
So I was in graduate school and needed a hobby. And so I signed on to be the local organizer for an organization called Join the Impact, which was organizing marches in all 50 state capitals plus DC to protest the Proposition 8 decision. Uh, I should say that to protest the Proposition 8 uh, passage on the ballot. And so we led a march of more than 5,000 people from the Capitol all the way down the mall and up around in front of the White House and just talking about why marriage equality is important. It's not the only thing that LGBTQ people care about, certainly, but it is a window into the ways in which, again, we have these social structures and these laws that are telling us that they know us better than we know ourselves and they know what is and isn't okay for us. And it's a matter of the fundamental freedom to be who you are. I think it's interesting because you said uh, uh, everything is determines health, everything, political, social. I forget the third one. Economic, political, economic. social, and economic determinants of health. Yeah. I, well, I get economic. Uh, talk to me a little bit about political. I mean, we can really see it happening now, right? This politicized this politicized desire to regulate what people can do with their bodies in relation to reproductive rights, reproductive justice, that directly impacts people's health and well-being. People will die if abortion is not available. People have already died because abortion is getting more and more difficult to access. And so the decisions that politicians, policymakers, judges are making about the services and opportunities and benefits that are available to different groups of people. Those are political decisions that then have direct influences on health and well-being. The political angle on this and the political influence on this, it's exactly what you were talking about. Folks telling you what you can and can't do or who you should or should not um, um, be that that still exists today. Very much so. In many ways, transitioning in Russia wasn't any harder than it would have been for me to transition here. This was almost 20 years ago. And at that point, the message was really clear. We have no idea who you are. We have no idea what you are. And we don't know what to do with you. And we're not going to help you. So it took a lot of community support. It took a lot of creative thinking. It took a lot of being willing to do whatever was necessary in order to access these really life-saving services, really life-saving and medically necessary procedures and, and supports. And it really makes me sad to see the direction that the conversation is going in now, because we have actually made a lot of progress over those 20 years in places like not just Whitman Walker, which has a lot of experience and expertise serving LGBTQ populations, but just broadly everywhere. I remember when I came back to the States in 2008 and I started looking for a provider who would give me hormone therapy. And the only provider I could find, he was very lovely, but, and I don't say this to complain about him, but he ran a women's fertility practice. And you can bet that no one was comfortable with me being the only bearded gentleman sitting in a room full of women who were all trying to figure out what on earth I was doing there if I wasn't accompanying someone. And that was in 2008. A lot has changed. I recently had a really wonderful experience. I had to go to 
a local healthcare organization, not Whitman Walker, um, but a, a different one to get a procedure that was looking for evidence of kidney cancer. And I was really worried because I was thinking this is going to be so unpleasant. I'm going to have to tell this person that I'm transgender and they're going to react and everybody's going to feel awkward and it's going to be terrible. And I'd worked myself up into a whole frenzy by the time I got there. And I talked with probably five or six providers and other staff along the way through this this screening procedure. And every single one of them was incredibly lovely. And they said, yes, we know you're transgender. That's fine. No, that doesn't change anything about how we're going to treat you. And it was almost as if they couldn't believe I was so worried, which is a wonderful place to be in. And I just think as we're having these conversations at the state level increasingly about restricting people's access to gender affirming care, trying to tell transgender people that we don't have the right to exist. We don't have the right to medical care. We don't have the right to go to school safely. We don't have the right to the correct ID documents. That's going to unravel or is aimed at unraveling so Mm. much of the progress that we have made. If that ain't bad enough. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There's a whole nother side issue here with health as well because of young people and suicide rates. Correct. So that that's a whole nother implication. Right. Most definitely. And I could speak to that both from a personal and a professional perspective. If I hadn't been able to transition to be affirmed as I really am in my body and in myself, I would be dead. Absolutely. Um, and it is not an academic question for me to think about the relationship between gender affirming care and reducing suicide risk and making it possible for people to be happy in who we are and to lead full, healthy, productive lives. And the literature is quite clear. Gender affirming care that helps trans people be who we truly are helps improve mental health. It reduces depression, it reduces anxiety, it improves quality of life, it reduces suicidality. The list goes on and on and on. And this is true for adults, it's true for young people. It is also true that it is hard to be transgender. It is hard to be a transgender person in a transphobic world. So if we're looking for any particular medical intervention to fix everything for trans people, adults or kids, it's not going to happen because really the most important part of so much of this is the community support. Being able to access gender affirming medical care is medically necessary and essential. And also we need the people in our lives to see us and support us and to be with us not trying to treat us as a problem to be legislated or stamped out of existence. The numbers of folks seeking uh, gender affirming care has skyrocketed, uh, especially since the Affordable Care Act. Why is that? Because it's available, because we no longer have to hide, because we no longer have to tell lies in order to get providers to help us. Trans people have always been here. I can tell you, I transitioned before it was cool. We've always (laughs) been here. There are large communities of us everywhere, all around Mm -hmm. the world, but we had to hide. It was actually part of the medical standard of care that once you transitioned, you disappeared. You assimilated, quote unquote, into a quote unquote normal life, into cisgender society and pretended like you weren't trans. 
because that was thought to be the safest thing when there was so much animus, so much violence directed at transgender people. And there still is a lot of animus. There still is a lot of violence, um, particularly for transgender women, particularly for transgender people of color. But it is possible to be visible and to be proud openly of who we are than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so what we're seeing is not new cases, quote unquote cases. What we're seeing is new opportunities for people to be open about who they are and what they need. I think when people listen uh, to this, they want to know a little bit, Doc, about what can I do? An advocate, what can I do uh, to help? And who in our industry um, is sort of the, the target for uh, making functional, practical change? Is there a plan? Hello, NCQA. <laughs> Wonderful to be in conversation with you today. Hmm. I would say very much that folks working in the healthcare quality space have a huge role to play in understanding and addressing health disparities affecting LGBTQI plus populations. At their core, disparities are a quality problem. They are a problem of a lack of quality or an unevenness in quality of services, access, and outcomes. So if we are engaged in measuring and improving quality indicators, we need to make sure that we can see where LGBTQI plus patient populations are so that we can measure those disparities and then use the tools of measurement and use the driver of health equity, that goal of improving access, improving quality, improving outcomes for everyone, using that as a driver to push us towards making the changes that we need to in our systems. So it does start with measurement because it's very easy without knowing what the problem is, it's very easy to claim that there isn't a problem at all. And that is historically so much of what's happened in LGBT patient population health is simply saying, well, we don't really think that there are those that, that many of those people, and I'm using air quotes here, but increasingly we are seeing those, the indications of not only how many LGBT people are in the United States, how many LGBT people are probably in any given hospital patient population or provider practice, um, but also of the degree to which sexual orientation and gender identity are important determinants of health. They really do matter, both for providing the best care to individuals and for ensuring that populations are advancing equally towards that goal of health equity. So within the within the healthcare community, not the just the quality community, is that is that um, sort of the 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 hardest part convincing folks that this not that this group exists because I think probably there's empathy in the healthcare system, um, but convincing them that it is a big enough group. When we think about the ways that we allocate resources in the US around different populations, around different healthcare conditions. For instance, there are just over 1 million people in the United States living with HIV. We all recognize how important 
it is to make sure that people living with HIV are able to access the services, benefits, and treatments that they need to lead healthy lives. When you look at the size of the LGBT population, it's actually much larger. That isn't to say relative importance. It is merely to say that we have already shown as a society as a healthcare system that we can identify when things are important. It doesn't necessarily matter whether it's one person or a million or 10 million. And so we're seeing that there are these really important disparities that affect LGBTQ people, HIV for one, which is still majorly concentrated among gay and bisexual men and transgender people, particularly transgender people of color. And so when we're looking at ways of making sure that the healthcare system is serving everyone, we need to look at those disparities, HIV, mental and behavioral health, uh, cardiovascular health, um, smoking. Uh, there are so many ways in which people's bodies are taking on the stress and the strain of living in a society that still often takes opportunities to tell us that our lives don't matter. That hurts. It hurts mentally. It also hurts physically. And this is something that we know from decades of research. The, the LGBT health movement really stands on the shoulders of the incredible pioneers who have been doing work for decades now on racial and ethnic health disparities. The ways in which being black or being part of another community of color in a society like the United States has very measurable negative impacts on your health. And we see that same, it's a, the, the term that has been used for it is quote unquote minority stress. Noting the ways in which moving through a racist, a sexist, a transphobic, a homophobic society actually has these measurable impacts on our health and well-being, both in the immediate and the long term. What is it that is the first priority, the must to close equity for this population, for the LGBTQ plus population? The must is for people to care. The must is for people to see LGBTQI plus people as human beings, as people who are worthy of care, worthy of love, worthy of support, and yes, worthy of measurement, worthy of having our stories told. Because at the end of the day, data are really just stories. They're stories about who we are, stories about what we've experienced, and stories about what we need. And so offering more opportunities to collect and share those stories and to see systems change because of them, that I think is the ultimate goal. Dr. Kellen Baker, Executive Director of the Whitman Walker Institute in our nation's capital. Thank you so much for joining us. Time now for Matt's Facts, some important health-related tidbits for you to show off and share. The month of May is Behavioral Health Awareness Month. To that end, NCQA offers providers our behavioral health distinction, which at the very least considers both mental health care and substance abuse disorders. As COVID continues to influence our lives, there's no time like the present to do a behavioral self-check. Here are some tips from the National Institute of Mental Health on dealing with stress in your life. If you've been feeling down on yourself, having trouble sleeping, but still are taking care of yourself or others, try some self-care 
to bring yourself up. You can try eating healthier, practice meditation, and talk out things with friends and family. By the way, you can also turn off the TV and the telephone, disconnect, and take a walk for a while. But if those feelings last more than two weeks, and if the symptoms of poor behavioral health worsen or intensify, it could be time to invest in some talk therapy. Find a professional to talk to, could be virtual care or meeting in person, could be one-on-one -on -one talk or a group therapy session. There are lots of possibilities for assistance, but all of these lead to a singular goal, your best health. NCQA's Behavioral Health Distinction, like so many of our programs, helps make sure patients don't fall through the gaps in healthcare. With our guidance, primary care practices develop effective evidence-based workflows for their behavioral health services. But we do more than just help improve outcomes. We also help providers deliver whole person care, making sure that no matter what's happening to the patient physically, their mental health is being considered and addressed. For more about our behavioral health recognition program, go to ncqa.org, click in the search box in the upper right corner, and type distinction in behavioral health integration. And now a moment to focus on some NCQA programming. We're headlong into our quality innovation series, a run of over 20 webinars covering all aspects of healthcare and measurement today. You can sign up for as many as you like or save a few bucks with an all access pass. Right out of the gate, we host some amazing talks. Yes, all of the courses fulfill IPCE credit. So sign up today at education.ncqa. Org. Looking further down the road, we see our mid-July Digital Quality Summit. This all-virtual two-day event brings you incredible speakers covering everything from the search for an innovative digital quality ecosystem to the virtues of the learning health system. More to come at ncqa.org. And keep an eye out for this fall's brand new four-day event, early November, live in D.C., the NCQA Health Innovation Summit. For more on how you can participate, go to ncqasummit.com. And now it's your turn to speak your mind. I'll throw you a question and you can write us back. This episode's question is, if you could help a previously unrecognized population become more visible in healthcare, what's the first thing you do? Write us your response at communications at ncqa.org and it could be featured here another day. In fact, if you have any comments, questions, or ideas for folks we should feature on Inside Healthcare, drop us a line. It gets awfully quiet around here sometimes, so make some noise for us. We want to hear from you. That wraps up another episode of Inside Healthcare. We're grateful to you, loyal listener, for tuning in. NCQA is all about measurement, and nothing's better than bragging about our growing numbers. So keep it up. On behalf of producer Dave Smolar and all of us here on the communications team at NCQA, I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.